Good morning, everybody. As mentioned, my name is Michelle Acton. I'm from the Carswell Estate Life Group. We meet on a Thursday evening at 7 o'clock. I have written a few words here on exactly why it is the best um, uh, life group to join. So if you don't mind me taking time. No, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. You just come speak to me afterwards and I'll tell you. Right. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. While he clung to Peter and John... All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by my own, our own power or piety, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about God, which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Hear the word of the Lord. Uh, Won't you join me in a word of prayer? Thanks, Raf. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. When we consider how we treat our king, we know how desperately we need a savior. Father, we long to enjoy you. We long to fellowship with you. And so we praise you that you have made a way through your son and in the power of your spirit. Please help us to ponder these things deeply and prayerfully and carefully now as we come to your word. In his name we pray. Amen. In some ways, the passage that Michelle just read for us is very simple. Uh, If you were here with us last week, you'll know that a man who was lame from birth is fully healed. Full restoration. It's a miracle. 
And of course, the people are utterly astounded. They're amazed. They want to know what has just happened. They want to know what does this mean, as we would. And so the Apostle Peter explains it. And that's what this passage is about. He explains the miracle. Simple. But as we're going to see, the meaning of this miracle is as deep as it is wide. So our passage is all about a miracle, but what is a miracle? You might say it's a supernatural event. Okay, but what is that? It is God intervening directly, explicitly, openly, transparently in the world that he's made. But why does he do that? What does God want with the world? What is God doing in the world? The meaning of this miracle is going to help us answer those questions. So how does Peter explain this miracle? He basically says three, three things. It's not about us. It is about Jesus. And you need to respond. It's not about us. It is about Jesus. And you need to respond. It's not about us. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. We don't want to rush past this because it's completely countercultural. Completely. Peter says, listen carefully, it was not our power or godliness that made this man walk. I'm going to say it again. It was not our power or godliness that made this man walk. My father has um, connections to the aviation industry and he was telling me about a Gulfstream jet that's been parked on the runway at Lanceria for two or three years now. So long, it's just been sitting there, not flying, not being serviced, so long, in fact, that it's, it cannot be fl flown. It's, uh, it's beyond that break-even point where restoring it, repairing it would just cost too much. It wouldn't be worth it. To replace that jet would cost 37 million U.S. dollars. The jet belongs to Shepard Bushiri. Can you imagine Shepard Bushiri ever saying these words? It was not by my power or godliness that this man walked. You don't say those words. That completely undermines the whole business model. Saying those words is the surest way from keep, to keep yourself from ever owning a jet. And Shepard Bushiri could also never say the other thing, the, the other thing that Peter said to the cripple. Silver and gold have I none. He could say it, but it would be a lie. <laughs> if you want silver and gold, then in some way, the miracle must be yours. The power must be yours. That's the whole model. But the Apostle Peter has an entirely different approach. This miracle has absolutely nothing to do with us. He's pleading with them. Why are you staring at us? 
Do we grasp that? Because the shepherd bushiris of this world are one thing, and the Lord will be their judge. But do we grasp it? Do we understand that God's work in our midst has nothing to do with our power or godliness? Are we living in total dependence on him? Or are we working as if we are worthy instruments and the power is actually ours in some way? Now, one way to test is to look at how we react to failure or success. If we are proud in success, if we're crushed by failure, it's a sure sign that functionally we're trusting in our own power and godliness. We may say something else, but in reality, that's what we're trusting. If we are thankful, come what may. If we're thankful, come what may. Thankful in success, thankful in failure. Well, then it's a sure sign that we are trusting in the Lord. It's a sure sign that we grasp this is not about us. Whatever the Lord is doing here, it's not about us. Secondly, it is about Jesus. The apostle makes this, he really wants to drive this point home. And so he makes the same point in three different ways. He shows that this miracle is all about Jesus from recent events, from his titles, and from his place in his father's plans. So firstly, recent events. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are his witnesses. And just remember, that's their job. That's what an apostle is. He's a witness. An eyewitness. The God of the covenant, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, glorify Jesus. What did you do with him? What did you do with him? You handed him over. You denied him. You traded him for a murderer. You killed him. The Jesus you betrayed, denied, traded, and killed, this same Jesus, God rose from the dead. You rejected him. God vindicated him. The miracle is proof of that reality. The miracle is proof that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of his Father and he is reigning and active in exercising all authority in heaven and on earth. And in his name, verse 16, by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says recent history makes it plain this miracle is all about Jesus. He makes the same point by the titles that he gives to Jesus. So Jesus is the suffering servant who has been glorified, verse 13. He is the holy and righteous one, verse 14. He is the author of life, verse 15. He is the Christ, God's anointed king, verse 18. We'll spend just a little bit of time on each one. Eight centuries before Christ, the prophet Isaiah gave hope to a people under judgment by promising 
a servant from God who would suffer on their behalf and then be taken into glory. And in going that way, he would open the way for God's people. Now, through his suffering, Jesus is glorified and he opens the way for God's people. The miracle has the same shape to it. After suffering, there is restoration and fellowship with God. After suffering, glory. That's the suffering servant. Jesus is also the Holy One. He is set apart in his righteousness. He is set apart to restore all righteousness to the world. He will bind up the broken. He will strengthen the weak. He will free the captive. Again, in the words of Isaiah, he will make many others righteous by bearing their iniquities, their sin. The miracle is a picture of this great work of righteousness performed by the righteous one. He makes all things right. He's also the author of life. Life begins, life continues, life reaches its purpose in him. And he has the power to give life where there is none. That means he has power over death and decay. The miracle reminds us of that truth. Just think about what happens. Jesus, the author of life, banishes the decay from this man's body by a mere word spoken through a messenger. Where there was death, he brings life. He's also the king. And as king, supreme, saving, serving, suffering king, he has the power to heal. And he has deep compassion on his people. He is both willing and able. I am willing. Be clean. They are his words. And they bring healing. All of this is what Peter means when he says that it was by faith in this name that this man was healed. What name? Suffering servant. The Holy One, the Righteous One, the author of life, the King of God's kingdom. Trust in that name. Trust in the one who bears those titles made the difference. This is what Jesus did, Peter is saying. You see this miracle? This is what Jesus did because this is who Jesus is. The miracle is one small reminder of that profound truth. Finally, Peter shows us, he shows his first audience. This is all about Jesus. By showing us his place within the plans of his father. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, verse 22. He's the king in the line of David, verse 24. He is the seed of Abraham through whom the whole world will be blessed, verse 25. In other words, everything that God was doing in the world from the very beginning, through Abraham, Moses, David, it all has its purpose and fulfillment in Jesus. The whole of salvation history recorded for us in the scriptures have their climax in the Christ. As Paul said, every promise God ever made is yes and amen in Christ. He's the heart of what God is doing in the world. 
He is what life is all about. And the miracle testifies to that. The Apostle Peter is explaining the miracle. He says, it's not about us. It is about Jesus. And you must respond. You must. Peter's speaking to the Jewish people of Jerusalem gathered at Solomon's portico in the temple complex and he calls them to respond. Look at verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter has explained that Jesus Christ is reigning and active. The miracle is proof of that. He goes on to say, if you are hearing this, you must respond. It's that kind of message. This is not the news that your blood sugar levels are a little bit low. This is the news that you have a terminal disease and it's aggressive. But there is a cure. Now you might just ignore the blood sugar. I know a lot of you who would. But you're not going to ignore the terminal disease. You are going to respond. What response does Peter call for? You must repent of your sin and turn from your wickedness. What sin? What wickedness is he referring to? Verse 13 again. You delivered him over and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. In other words, you have set yourselves against the living God. You have set yourselves against his plans, his purposes, his king. You killed the author of life. That can mean only one thing for you. Death. And we say, how could they? How could they? Brothers and sisters, do you see... This is precisely what we are doing every single time we sin. Every sin with a small s, if there is such a thing, is rooted in this kind of sin with a capital S. Every sin with a, every small sin, if there is such a thing, is a denial of the king and his authority over us. Any unholiness is a rejection of the Holy One. Any unrighteousness is a betrayal of the Righteous One. Every time we choose the sin that leads to death, we are turning our backs on the author of life. More than that, we're trading him away. We take anything except him. We take a murderer. We condemn him to death. When we stubbornly insist on choosing our own way, on choosing disobedience to God, on choosing sin, the writer to the Hebrews says we are crucifying the Son of God all over again. So we need to be careful not to rush to distance ourselves from Peter's first audience. His call to them is God's call to us here this morning. Repent. 
Repent. Turn back. Now, if we do repent, if we do turn away from our sin and leave it behind us in the review mirror, what happens? What can we hope for? Thanks be to God, he's told us in our passage. Peter gives us four fruits of repentance. They are four motivations to turn from your sin today. They're powerful motivations, wonderful motivations. Firstly, verse 26. Repent so that your sins can be blotted out. Now what Peter has in mind here is ink on papyrus. But the ink of those days wasn't acidic like our ink, so it couldn't cut into the paper. Which meant that it could be wiped away with very little effort whatsoever. This then is what Peter has in mind when he says repent so that your sins can be blotted out. That's you if you turn to the Lord Jesus. That's you if you turn away from your sin. Now how can that possibly, be, how can that possibly happen? How can, how can history just be erased like that? Remember, as I, just, as I just alluded to, repentance is more than turning away. Repentance is turning towards. And so there's a cleaning agent involved. The cleaning agent is the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that blots out your sin. It's the blood of Christ that wipes away your sin. You are forgiven because he has borne your punishment. Repent so that your sins can be blotted out as if they never existed. Your sin, past, present, future, blotted out. Imagine. And they're not blotted out until you sin again. They're not blotted out by your confession. They blotted out by the blood of Christ. Confession is merely returning to this reality, to this glorious reality. In faith, your sins are blotted out. Imagine. Imagine the freedom. Secondly, repent, verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Repent so that when Jesus returns, you can share in the refreshment and restoration and recreation of all things. And by all things, he means all things. The renewal of all things. As the Apostle Paul says, when Jesus returns, creation itself is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. No more earthquakes in Syria, trapping tens of thousands under the rubble. Liberated, set free. Restored, refreshed, made new. Creation itself. And so, as the Apostle John says, when Jesus returns, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
Jesus is making all of creation new. Every wrong is going to be wound back and made right. And here's the truly staggering thing. When you repent, you become part of that. You are a new creation in Christ. When you repent, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are this cosmic recreation reduced to one. You are the new creation walking around the streets of Josie or Pretoria or Madrid. Imagine this. You become an agent of this new creation now. You are extending what God is doing in the world. You're an avenue, an instrument of new creation right now. You're going to experience it without any limits in all of its multicolored, symphonic, sweet, sweet glory when Jesus returns. It's coming because he's coming. But you get to taste it now. The sweetness of it is on your lips. You have a share in it if you repent. Third, repent so that you can escape the curse. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. The call to repent comes with wonderful, joyful, exquisite promises. But it also comes with these dark and terrifying realities. And both are God's grace to us. He will save us any way he can. He'll use whatever motivation it takes. You do not want to ignore Jesus and be destroyed from the people. You do not want to be locked into your selfish rebellion forever. You do not want God to give you what you are actually asking for, what we're all asking for in our sin. Leave me alone. You do not want to be God forsaken. That is Jesus on the cross. My friends, there's nothing worse. Repent. Repent. Repent to avoid the curse. And finally... Repent to access the blessing. Verse 25. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God is determined to bless his people. He always has been. He always will be. He will bring it to pass. He will bless his people. The only way it won't happen is if we, in our wicked folly, refuse the invitation. But he makes one last appeal. Jesus is God's great gift of love to his enemies. He is God's great peace offering to a people who have declared war on him. And you can access all the wonders God has in store for you if you turn from your sin and repent. 
Think about it. The blessing that God promised to Abraham is yours in Christ Jesus. So the fruit of repentance, sins blotted out as if they never existed. A share in the new creation. A share in making all things that are wrong right. Escaping the curse. Enjoying the blessing. Forever. All of it is yours. If you answer God's call to repent. Let's circle back to the beginning. Peter's sermon is about a miracle. When it comes to miracles... When it comes to what God is doing in the world, we can either take the small view or we can take the big view. The small view says, this is about me. This is about what God is doing through me or what God is doing for me. And that's what God is all about. He's about giving me power uh, or gifting to raise me above my peers. Or he's about meeting my needs. It's just me and Jesus in this little private bubble of my concerns. Jesus is tending to me. That's what his job is. That's his job. That's what he's doing in the world. Peter has a different message. He takes the big view. A man is crippled from birth and raised to perfect health. It's a witness to what God is doing to renovate. All that God is doing to renovate, renew, refresh, revitalize, recreate the entire cosmos through his son. The miracle is just a witness. It's just a point. It's a signpost, a taste, a glimpse. And it's all about Jesus. The Jesus who cares for you personally, deeply, profoundly. He has numbered the hairs on your head. He knows what you need. And he cares enough to save you for something so much higher and richer And more wonderful than yourself. Now if that's the case. If we take the big view. And I don't see how we can take any other view. Given the scripture that's on the page in front of us. It raises some pretty sharp questions for us. Doesn't it? Do you want your sin blotted out? Do you want to escape the curse? And share in the blessing? Do you want to be part of the restoration of all things? All things. Or would you rather hold on to your view of life as it is? Life in the bubble. That small view. That small view of God. That small view of what he's doing in the world. All of those questions really boil down to this one. Have have you... Have you responded to Jesus? And by Jesus, I don't mean the Jesus of our making who lives with us in the bubble. I mean Jesus, the suffering servant, the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the king of God's kingdom. Have you responded to him? Please don't assume an answer. The question is for you. If the answer is yes, praise be to God and have full assurance in his blessing and and in your security in Christ. 
But don't assume an answer. It doesn't matter if you've been coming here for 10 years and you've done every course twice and you are involved in every ministry under the sun. It's not enough to hang around with people who know him. It's not enough even to serve people who know him. Do you know him? And it's not enough to know about him. This isn't a Bible quiz. This is life and death. Have you responded to him? Have you surrendered to him? Are you walking with him? Have you turned your back on the sin that leads to death and fled to the author of life? Because no sin is too much for him. They killed the author of life. And yet he made a way for them to come home. That's what this sermon is. It's an invitation for those who killed the author of life in that first generation to come home. To have fellowship with the Father through the Son. In the Spirit. That's what he's offering them. And he's offering it to us this morning. He's offering us a way home. There is no other way. Let's be clear. There's no other way. So take it. Repent. Turn. Today. If that's something you want to do, if you feel like the Lord Jesus is making this invitation to you personally this morning, it's because he is. And the way you receive it is simply by answering him, by responding to him. And we do that in prayer. So there's a, there's a prayer that you can pray with me. I'm hoping it'll be on the screen. Can we put it up? I want you to know what it is you're praying. 